I was watching Fresh Off the Boat, and they had special guest Heather Locklear on. <gasps> Heather Locklear. Alexa, how old is Heather Locklear? Is 55 years oh, she does not look 55, Trisha. You know what's sad about sad. that? Viola Davis is like 50. <laughs> this is why This is why in the end, we have to realize that the gods love black people. In Honey, the end. In the, the gods end. love Nubia, I'll tell you. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in L.A. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm actually, like, really alert. I am so productive right now. It's kind of weird. Like, I got up this morning at 6.30 a.m. because I had a podcast. No, I had a, actually a conference call at 8 a.m. And I'm like, rare. Really all the time. I know. It's like the old That's age is happening in the reverse. I'm like feeling it. You know, like, <laughs> I know we talk about old age this, old age that. What the hell are we going to do when we're actually old? You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you think? We're our old. Honey, we're not old. Not yet. I don't know. We have, like I mean, another, we have a good another like, I always think you're old when what's you old? Cannot, yeah. I don't know, like 70? Like you can't. <laughs> 75? <laughs> I was going to say, like, when you have to, like, change your daily schedule around your body and what it can and can't do. But, honey, I'm already doing that. And I'm just – I'm not – I feel like I'm not old because it's like I haven't reached my life halfway mark. I mean, if everything goes well. I just feel like well, you I'm know, not this there is- yet. It's, this is only because we're aging that you can even make this comment. Because when I was in my 20s, old was somebody in their 40s and 50s. Now you're like oh pushing God. the um, – now you're pushing it. Like, oh, no, it's 70s. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> apparently, age is not an objective thing. Old on age face- is apparently not objective. On Facebook, uh, there was like a, a message group that popped up for people in my high school. It's like, do you guys want to have a 25-year reunion? And people are like banting about like blah, blah, blah. And then someone commented, wow, it's been so long. I have two kids in college now. Time flies. And I was like, holy fucking shit. What? You should have I said mean, just to that the idea. Person, you're old. <laughs> you never, <laughs> we're the same age. You know, you don't think about it. But like if you walked – like if I walked into my high school right now, I'd be like, oh, this is my high school. Everyone who attends that high school would be like, whose dad is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I look like someone's dad. That's crazy. You know what though? It's funny you make that comment because I still somewhat dress like I'm not anyone's could be anyone's parent. I couldn't be anyone's parent because I looked at my outfit this past week. I had on these like like heads like things and some shoes and, and some jeans and stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, why do I still dress like I'm in my twenties? I'm gonna keep doing it though. <laughs> Cause as long as this black don't crack. All right, honey, honey. I'm gonna continue to make you all think I am forever 30. Forever 30. <laughs> There's a me- I could encourage aging by changing my outfit. That's what I'm saying, but I will I hear you. There's a meme going around. It's like a picture of like the second grade girl. <laughs> and above it, it says, black women be like, my 50th birthday is next week. <laughs> it's true, though. It's really true. It's really true. 
Oh, man. Oh, I think about changing my wardrobe all the time, but I was like, this works for me. I mean, I, I can see myself aging because I look at myself every single day. But yeah. like people still think I'm much younger than I am. I like I, I met this person and we were chatting and then I revealed I was over 40. They were like, what, 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 what? I thought you were like 29. I was like, bless you. <laughs> Keep that person forever. <laughs> 29. Bless you. I was like, can you just record oh, that? You record <laughs> that you said that. I'm starting a little, looking a little bit older because I dress really professionally at work now. Yeah. Um, you know, I have two jobs. The second job, I dress really professional. The other one, not so much. And I can really feel that age difference. <laughs> <laughs> I've started having all my shirts tailored. Uh, what? Yeah. Oh, man. I started having all my shirts tailored, which makes me, I think it makes me appear younger. Mm. Better. Because I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I make money. I, I'm not, I shouldn't walk around looking like a total schlub. So everything like fits like really close now. Uh, and I think it, it, it projects the illusion, even as my hair grays and things. <laughs> it projects the illusion. <laughs> All right. Listen, let's, let's jump in some topics. Um, I want to, I know you have stuff to talk about. Let's just jump into your topic first. Cause I can't wait. Well, everywhere I go, I, I keep hearing this um, rallying cry, you know, turn to the arts, turn to the arts. The arts is going to lead us down the right path. That's That's been the consensus. Now, what's interesting for me is I've never really thought about the role that art plays in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been consuming art. You know, we, we, we casually recommend things all the time, you know, at the end of our podcast where I was like, this is what we're listening to this week. This is what, but now I feel like it's less of a, of a side note. And now it's become a more mainstay for me. So what I wanted to ask you about and and sort of contemplate is sort of what's the role of art been for you? And um, has that changed during this sort of Trumpian time? For me, it feels like it has, it feels like it has. Okay. I don't know if it's necessarily um, about Trump. I mean, maybe Trump has made it more um, obvious for me, um, the role of art in, in sort of like um, asking central questions, nurturing, inspiring, making me angry, all of those things. I, so I, I've just been contemplating all the pieces of art I've encountered in the last couple of weeks, a couple of movies I've seen, some books I've read. And um, and I, I was just curious for, for you, too. I was just like, oh, you know, I really want to talk to Chris about this. Like, is he, how is he consuming art? What is he doing with it? What is he feeling about it? Like, is it providing you solace? Like, what's going on with it? Is art providing me solace? First of all, when it comes to Trump and the current era, art a year from now, two years from now, I know this isn't your topic, but I'm really curious what it's going to look like. Just sure. because like resistance is such a theme, fighting is such a theme, struggle is such a theme right now. The last time I could think it was it was so prominent was in the '60s, which created a multitude of you know movies, TV at the time, music for sure, mm-hmm. um, and all sorts of physical art. So I'm really looking forward to that. In this current moment, I'm thinking about just the stuff that's being popularized and the things that come out now, and. I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. Like, I'm 
when you asked the question, I was at first I wasn't sure where you were going. I don't know what to make of it. And if it's sort of if where you're going, you don't have to answer because I'm you're gonna go into your whole thing, but like if where you're going is am I using art to soothe myself to receive messages that are counter to what's going on in the culture? I would say no. I don't think that art is is create is popularized yet. I think it's being created right now. I think we are looking at art much differently and things that are hitting the culture are being received differently. For instance, uh, the documentary 13th and uh, the Baldwin piece, I'm Not Your Negro. I mean, these things were going to come out regardless of when the election, because they've been working on it for a very long time. But now that it's arrived in this, you know, post-Trump era, a little bit more urgent and a little bit more I don't want to say a little bit more important because both those movies I think are extraordinarily important. Go go watch them now. Uh, but I think it's hitting our culture in a moment where we're going to receive it differently. And it feels, it, like I said, it feels a lot more urgent. And the short answer to your question is that art is actually making me more anxious nowadays. The movies that I watch are making me more anxious. Um, I watched Get Out last week and I had a tension headache that lasted two full days. And I think a lot about it. It's just that, you know, the fears that that movie highlights uh, are, they're real fears, first of all, but they're just so much more, uh, they're so much closer to me now in this post-sessions, post, you know, not looking into police officers doing their job anymore, which is something that Sessions is proud of, that they're going to remove some of the supervision that Obama put into place for troubling, troubled police uh, departments. Uh, those, those, so those fears are real. And so, I mean, the short answer is that art is actually terrifying me nowadays. <laughs> I mean, do you That's think the short answer? Well, you know what, then the question, okay. So one of the things that you, you pointed out in this piece right now is that you said that um, you can anticipate that the art that's being directly influenced by Trump is going to come out in the future. Right. Yep. That's, yep. Yeah, you know, so that's clearly so then you can say how is Trump influencing art? That's gonna be explored maybe a year or two from now. Yeah, six months so from now we're gonna learn it out for sure. Or yeah, maybe, but then the other it's gonna be a year from now. Yeah, that's true. The cycle is so long. Um but then the other side of this question is um clearly then Trump is um impacting how you're receiving art which had a much yes. longer shelf life, right? Because it, it's, been, it's been under the surface for a long time. Can, you even go, can we even go back and imagine what, how, for example, like you said, right? I'm not going to talk necessarily about plot, but do you envision that you might have been able to receive that movie differently? Get out? If, if, mm-hmm. like yes. How, cause- yes, absolutely. If Get Out had come, and listeners, and we're not going to spoil anything or go too deep into it. We know everyone hasn't seen it. You should. But- Get Out, if Get Out had come out two years ago, I think it's hard, it's weird to say if you've seen the movie, but I think it would have received a little bit more lightheartedly. There's a lot of lighthearted moments during the movie, but in a world where there was a black man who was president and there's all these gains made and all these conversations being had about race and racism and supremacy and Black Lives Matter, I think that environment would First of all, I don't think Get Out would have been the runaway hit that it's been if it came out two years ago. I think that it came out now. It is a true horror movie. It's a true horror movie because the things that are in this movie, well, shit, it's not so far afield. Some of the some of the little things in that movie are not so far afield. 
That's so strange to me because I think I, I didn't think I had an awareness of art playing out that way. Like I was never really sort of aware of the sort of grounding and the context of the culture that I was living in and how it was inter the interplay between how I, how I was receiving art and the art that was coming out of it. So in a strange way, I'm having this weird relationship now where I'm, I'm sort of hyper-conscious of the stories we tell ourselves mm -hmm. and what those stories now suddenly mean. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't, I, I, I don't know, I'm such a person that thinks about all the stuff all the time that I'm kind of a little bit surprised that um, I miss this art boat. Because, I mean, I'm not one of those people that's like, I don't consume a lot of music, you know. I don't consume yeah. a lot of contemporary music, I'll be honest. I think my musical taste hasn't changed since the fact that I love Bob Marley. And he's like my one constant. So I don't kind of keep up. <laughs> With sort of music of the now. You know how we were talking about aging before? Okay, grandma. Okay, grandma. I am, I am that person. <laughs> well, because, I mean, at the end of the day, but see, the question for me and, always, and the challenge for me has always been that I thought something like a Bob Marley, which is enduring. And so mm -hmm. what's, what's really intriguing is this notion then that the interplay between us and art is going to evolve in such a way that the landscape that we live in is going to necessarily um, mess with the way that we're receiving art. Well, of course. I mean, I mean it should, I guess, but I don't know. The interesting part of that interplay is that things that were created a year or two ago in a different environment is now received differently than the artist intended. And that is yes. going to inspire people to create art based on that interpretation. So it's interesting how, do you see that zigzag, what just happened I there? Because I think it's, it, people are taking a hard left now or hard right. No, I'm not talking politically. I just mean like people are making like a sharp turn in a different direction. And a year from now, it's gonna be really interesting what comes out. Um, I wanted to, I don't know if this is hijacking your topic. And no, if, no. But this is, it's something I was just thinking, I was just reading a book. I'm looking... <laughs> Listeners, I'm looking around frantically. For, I can't. I think I'm putting the other room. I was. I'm, I was just reading this book, which is uh, based on the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft wrote about um, unspeakable cosmic horrors of the 1920s uh, in a in a new genre that it seems he created called weird fiction. And it's based on that. It's written contemporarily, and it's it's talking about all characters that could exist in and around his stories. Now, because it's written now in the 21st century, uh, some of those characters are people of color. Some of them are women. When H.P. Lovecraft himself, who lived over 100 years ago, um, you know, he had particular ideas about people of color or women. And, I, and they're writing this new book as if um, these characters don't have to be burdened with things like extraordinary sexism and racism. And this is, I'm concerned sometimes about the way that we treat these issues um, in movies and TVs and books. I had glimpsed an article who talked about this when it comes to science fiction stories. Specifically, mm. the article was talking about X-Men, how X-Men is a giant allegory for racism. But in, in almost n none of the movies, in very few of the comic book stories, does Storm have to deal with being a black woman surrounded by a lot of white people? And those, the X-Men themselves never seem to struggle with that, be, you know, intra-team. And glossing over that when the whole point of your story is that we need to respect people's differences seems to be hypocritical. Uh, 
So what do you think about that? Because I, I mean, I can see it both ways. I don't know what the answer is or if we need one, but I understand that people want to recast some of these old stories like they're doing with Lovecraft. Like if we want to talk about this time in these stories, we don't want our story to be about racism and sexism, but that was part of the weave and weft of the time. So excising that is like not telling a story at all, or am I being too dramatic? Well, this is, can I, I, I'm going to relate this to something that I recently experienced in a book club meeting that I just had. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, I think it will, um, I think it's a good contrast and, or maybe even just a good comparison. So we all just read Giovanni's Room. Mm-hmm. And Giovanni's nice. Room, nice, right? Written <laughs> yes. by um, James Baldwin in um, the 1950s. And it, of course, James Baldwin is an African-American man, but the brunt of the characters are all the characters are white. And so the question comes up in the book club, why did he choose to do that? You know, aside from the fact that obviously a person of color is writing white characters, but why place this character within this world? Because the character is um, in some sense struggling with masculinity, struggling with his um, sexuality. And so I think part of what emerges out of that conversation is this notion that by putting the characters in this completely white world, he can focus essentially on sexuality. He didn't have to deal with intersection because you don't ever have to deal with intersection when you deal with white characters. Cause that's just not, that's just not something that happens in storytelling. Right. But, I mean, that was extrapolated from it. But from isn't the that in some way like supporting like this idea of normalization of the white experience it is. I haven't read Giovanni's Room in, in well 15, 20 years. I don't remember it, to be honest with you. But, but I mean, I think that's very problematic. Well, listen, I'm not saying that this is a claim that James would have made. I'm not saying that at all. I think this is oh, just okay. um, this is something that I think people extrapolate from from the book to say, well, you know, if I put this in a white world, then I don't have to deal with the fact that um, it's, it would have been doubly hard for this character to be black and gay. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the assumption, right? Cause the assumption in some ways is that there's a, you're right. There is a kind of normalized world for a white person. And mm-hmm. then if you add other elements that could increase oppression, then that world begins to change or You can actually assume that what happens is it's not that white people don't experience all the various complexities of what it means to have identity. It's just that they never um, they never visit it in their Mm -hmm. tales and they don't visit it in the the stories they tell about themselves. Because their struggle for identity isn't really a struggle because it's normalized. No, they have a different identity struggle. So that's the that's what I'm saying. It's like I, one of one of the things I've been really pushing back on lately is that we need to really confront white identity. But uh, yeah. but maybe because we've always conceived of identity as struggle, we don't know what to do when we have to tell the other part of that story. Well, which is what people- if the story isn't about struggle? What if identity for you isn't struggle? What if it's about acceptance or understanding of? of being a dominant um, person or in a culture or all of those kinds of things. What, what if, what if that's your journey as a white person is recognition of dominance, recognition of what that play, what part that has played in your life. And so identity for you is that dance, but identity for the other is, um, is because it's built around othering. Right. So you have, you know, you know, so, so, so one of the things that I think is interesting is like this question then you bring up about um, these stories is because obviously those stories have never confronted dominance really. 
right? They've never confronted this, like the 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 the, the landscape of dominance, which is why mm-hmm. they never talk about Storm. They never talk about. They don't even talk about the fact that she has a different gender. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> because they're not really keying into the fact that identity challenges are about power, and you can talk about power. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't you, you should have you should always have been talking about that. How are you and how are you? And ha- I mean, what's what's ironic is that Jane Austen talk about power. Jeremy, mm-hmm. you know I mean? she situated she, you she in an all class. She was talking about class, but she was able to sort of. Um, but remember, those novels were dismissed as like women's work. Right. But she was mm-hmm. intimately talking about class struggle, mm-hmm. um, intimately talking about gendered struggle, gendered white women's struggle, but still a struggle nonetheless. Right. Mm-hmm. But to, but but I think sometimes when you have um, you have to admit too though that when you have a male writer, the tendency is to kind of create this sort of blank space where identities aren't explored at all, and especially I feel, in science I fiction. Like, I feel like something's lost in that conversation, though. I really oh for sure. I, I feel like it's it's you're missing the whole point. I think a, a year ago on this podcast, I recommended a show called Ascension which was about people were launched into space on like a 60 year study and they were launched in the, um, in the fifties or sixties and every people in the cast are both white and black. And even though it's still 1958 for them, there's never any discussion about the fact that a black man is the captain of the ship. And for the first hour and a half, it was very distracting because I was like, I, the cues (laughs) are giving me fifties, but there's a black guy at the head of this thing. And then like people just interacting and and it's like, this doesn't make any sort of sense. Um, You know, I read a thing saying that they did colorblind casting. So they just picked the right people for the part. But then I was like, well, this is still disingenuous. Cause then what am I supposed to believe that these are black actors playing white parts? It just doesn't make sense that you just don't address the historical context of what I'm looking at. Um, And I guess, yeah. I mean, well, you know, obviously, this is thematic. This is going to be thematically helpful because it's also contemporary, and we're not giving anything away. But part of what is interesting about um, Get Out is because the racial dynamics is so clear. Yes, and they're and, obvious, and, and they are obvious. in every scene, and they're in every scene. Just like they, and I think that's why that movie works is because it's obvious to people of color in situations like the ones presented in the movie. Race is very much there. So when you watch movies or you read books where they sort of excise that out completely, it just it just it no longer feels genuine. If it ever did to me, like I can't, or rather, I can't look past it anymore. You know, well, after I read that article, it, X-Men just became like a really super silly thing to me. Like, yeah, like, how is it that they're treated so poorly? Like, are there ever any conversations about the X-Men on the team about, like, race and how the fact, like, well, Storm is, like, the only black person? You know, in the 80s, reading the comics, I think Storm was the only black X-Men until it was, like, a new mutant. Her name was M. Monet showed up. And it's like, the, so you guys going to talk about that? Like, Professor X, why are, you only, why are you only getting white students for your school? Like, the idea that that's not discussed, I just, it sort of invalidates, or is that too strong? It really kind of undercuts the message of what you're trying to do. Well, I mean, I think what it does, though, is I think it, it, calls, into the, it calls into question the notion that you can present a world that's completely detailed decontextualized yeah exactly and that doesn't make any what world is that (laughs) but i mean well well in a i mean 
and what's what's funny about that world is that I'm going to project into the future a future of completely no context. There's no context around gender. There's nothing around about because I mean, now listen, there's a there's a storyline that's making the rounds. And it's a cute little story and it's very lovable and it's made it on my timeline and it's all about this little black boy. Yes. And this little white boy. And I think they're what of I don't know kids, so they're what of comparable age, but they're they're five. five. They're five. So that's that's what five looks like. They're five year old. And the little white boy wanted to have his head shaped just like his little black friend, because then he thought the teacher would not be able to tell them apart. Now, obviously, this is an adorable story. It's very cute. But one of the things that you have to understand also about this story is that developmentally, it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's appropriate that the two don't recognize yes. difference in let that everybody way. everybody know, Trisha, because let me tell you something <laughs> right now, because what is making the rounds is people are sharing that being like, see, colorblindness is where we have to go. No, no, no. no. Oh my God, that's exactly, when I saw it, I was like- five, you're grown, stop it. This is the thing. As soon as I saw that, I was like, this is going to make the rounds. And I'm going to sound like a cynical bitch when I pull back from it. And everyone's going to say, go sit in a corner, you're an asshole. The reality is that is developmentally appropriate because we understand and that little child understands that, you know what? Essentially, you're right. There is nothing. There is no difference between the two of them in that way. Mm-hmm. But there is going to come a time when that little black boy is going to be perceived as a villain. He will be perceived as less than, in da- uh, dangerous, all of those things. When that turns happens, I don't know. I don't control that. But that turn will happen. And then he will begin to experience and have experiences that are going to be marred based on that assumption of his um, lack of innocence. Mm -hmm. So for us to then put on this cap and say, well, then why can't we all live like this five-year-old? Well, uh, will you start living and thinking and conceiving of the world as a five-year-old? We can't do that. There's some value to it, of course, because that's developmentally appropriate. But why do we want to push that onto adults? I don't understand that vision. And I think it is that colorblind sexless vision that we have been busy selling and that is what comics and I also think these fantasy book movies and all that stuff they were busy selling that like hey guess what we're gonna put you in a world where none of those things matter and then when I say to you why can't you put like an Asian character there well you know they didn't exist then but I was like I thought that didn't matter this world is fantastical so if it's fantastical they could be anyone there why not and they're like, but well, somehow or another, it com- it complicates the narrative. <laughs> Talking about those those little kids, you know, uh, when we because because everyone couldn't wait to share that. And when I saw it, I was like, "This is adorable," but it's going to get out of hand. And hours later, <laughs> swiftly, when we talk about when we talk about kids in this way and their quote unquote color blindness, it's and their the purity, very, it's the very height of white privilege. To then decide that that's where we need to go. Because you know what? That little black boy, um, if they haven't already started, uh, they will today. That little black boy has received information from his parents and his family about how different he is from his white friend. And even though it can't be explained to him exactly how and why, I'm sure that little black boy is well aware. The fact that the white parents did not talk to their child about race 
um, mm-hmm. is problematic. And the thing about this colorblind theory or fantasy is that it posits that race is the problem in our society. No, yep. racism is the problem in our society. And we want to have like a sexless, genderless <laughs> thing because there's too many genders and we can't deal with it. Again, it posits that gender is the problem, but gender is not the problem. Transphobia and sexism is the problem. And those are the things that we need to be attacking, not throwing babies out with bathwaters. <laughs> Or trying to convince me to live in that world. Exactly. (laughs) Or try to convince me to see the world as a five-year-old who has, who does not have all the information. (laughs) That, that little white kid adorably, adorably ignorant, not adorably innocent. There's a difference. He just wasn't aware of how the world worked. And I'm sure his black friend had some modicum. When I was little, uh, we moved to an all-white neighborhood when I was four years old. And every day before I went to school, my best friend's name was Michael. He was an Italian-American who lived in the neighborhood. My mom would tell me every single day on my way to school, remember, you can't get away with the same things that Michael can get away with. I didn't understand what she meant until I was in fifth grade. But she said it every day to me. And I was five. So, you know, congratulations to those little kids in Ooh, I think it was like Alabama. Uh, They're about to receive a lot of information very quickly. Uh, Congratulations to them. But no, I will not be living my life that way. Sorry. And also, I don't even know if that's an aim. But um, I do think think what was um, noteworthy about that to bring it back around to art is that- I was going to say, we need to to insert the the wrap-up. I don't know, we got so far (laughs) field. How are we going to wrap this up? (laughs) You you know, I think it's appropriate because I think one of the things that's interesting is that- um, art happens around us and then there's an interaction with the art and then there's also a way that you can receive the art that's built on like your history right and one of the reasons why I think something like a get out works is because it plays with the understanding that you know the world that this character could potentially exist in so you can get many layers in that movie obviously, but you are getting something if you're a white person, you're getting something if you're a black person, and much of that movie works if you understand that we live in two different worlds. If you don't understand that, I don't even understand how you're seeing that movie because the movie plays on those assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's so, that's why I guess I've been thinking about art because that movie so explicitly plays on your identity in order Mm -hmm. to enjoy elements of it that it then started me um, started me along a road where I was like, well, what parts of my identity um, are key- being keyed in to with this art that I'm consuming? Do you know what I mean? Like I was, you know, and I think that was happening in Giovanni's room because of course I'm sitting here reading this book and I'm a female, I'm a black female reading about this white man's gay man struggle with his identity and his um, sense of masculinity. And I'm like, hmm, I'm receiving it this way. You know, <laughs> this person's either sympathetic or unsympathetic to me because of that. So this idea that you can kind of like engage art without any sort of identity markers for yourself or within the art is just mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. It's, too it's weird. weird. I'm not sure it's useful. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe we're all trapped. You know, maybe we're all trapped in this in 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 our um in our identities and can't get out of them. But I don't even know if we should even aim to get out of them, because th- isn't that part of who we are? Isn't that part mm-hmm. of 
the con- the construct of the world that we have. You know, people are reacting to me because I'm a black female and I'm reacting to the world because I am a black female in a certain way. So that interaction is happening. Why do I want to um, negate that? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Mm. That was that was fun. We went oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. We went around the world and I I I. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's like some rapid fire like sudden right turns and we went up and down and landed on those two colorblind kids whatever down south. But I think it I mean I think it relates to art consumption. I think it I mean cuz think about think about the we are asking this question about how it's going to relate to sort of like art that's produced in a Trump world, right? For people who are going to potentially feel victimized by Trump and the policies that he's going to initiate, that's going to control the art. But what about people who don't feel victimized by that? Like, what kind of art are they going to be putting out there? You know what I mean? And and how are we going to be able to sort of in, um, interact with that art and look at it and go, hmm, that's weird that you're putting this art out there that seems like America is back to some great 1950s sitcom. You know, it's like those things you know, is your art of the moment. And what does mm-hmm. that even mean, really? Mm-hmm. Because that's how they sold the 70s. That's how they sold the 60s. They sold the 60s that the art was very much of the moment. And for a long time, I think we've always kind of assumed that we've kind of bypassed that with our art. I mean, there's always been a little bit of it, obviously. There have been socially conscious artists, but I don't know. What's art looking gonna, like in a resistance we're era? Gonna we're going to find out. <laughs> I mean, four four or five years from now, the movies are going to be, it's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. Um, uh, that's not true. It's not going to be like unlike anything you've ever seen, but we're definitely going to enter a period. I'm going to think about this because I, I do think this is going to be an interesting question. Like what themes are going to be appropriate? Like back mm-hmm. in the day when we were worried about carbon emissions, it's like, there were like four movies like Armageddon, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, you know, uh, Tornado, Sharknado, you know, like weather will kill us all. So I'm interested where we're going to go. I think we're going to see, um, I don't know, you know, we might see a return to World War II. We well, might think see about- come out. We might see, um, I'm trying I to think. think you're, I think you're right though, Chris. Think about that. Think about how, um, you know how you were saying art takes like a year, right? Yeah. Think about how think about the arc of what happened to the Captain America comic, which was something that the writer said that he anticipated and then was able to sort of like Captain America becomes the Nazi. Like that seems so strange and far out when it was pitched. And then but he felt like he had sensed a strain in the culture that he was writing about. And look at it. And look at where we've come now, right? Yeah. And then you've got that Matt Damon movie, which is about the 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 Great Wall, right? Yeah. Remember, that's a movie that took a while to come out too. But look mm-hmm. at the mo- the moment it's arriving, it's not a great moment for it. Same thing with Ghost in the Shell. You know, like that ne- <laughs> the landscape culturally has and socially has changed to the point where those pieces of art, if they're called commercial art at least, no longer have resonance. Honey, let's move on. I have a, I have a, a brief thing I want to discuss. Mm-hmm. And I have a sort of lengthy intro about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important because it's there's a tale I think bears telling. So, you know, I've worked with young people my entire life. And on Facebook, I noticed that one such young person that I used to work with like 15 years ago uh, had posted this article from the New York Times about Mac Beggs, who is the trans wrestler in Texas, who uh, he's forced to wrestle on the girls team against girls 
even though he is taking testosterone and identifies as a male. And he had posted something fairly ugly on his page. And then his friends and family were commenting very ugly things on it. And it bothered me for like two whole days. And then finally I said, you know what? I am going to reach out to him. And I did. I wrote him a long uh, message saying like, hey, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I just want to let you know that someone you used to love and respect has a very different uh, take on the thing that you presented. And I, you know, I went into it a little bit and I said, listen, you don't have to respond. You can respond if you want. If you don't, he wrote me back a wonderful message. So wonderful. And he said that he was so sorry that he had caused me any sort of distress. And he was able to discuss the trans issue that was really bothering him, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, But the reason why I'm telling this story is that because near the end of his message, he says, you know, this conversation is important. So I won't say it's pointless, but I did, uh, I take responsibility for starting an endless argument between my friends and family. I'm going to remove that post because I don't think it actually advances conversation on this topic. Um, so that's just my plug to when you see people post fucked up shit on Facebook, just reach out to them and just leverage your personal relationship and be like, Hey, what are you talking about? I disagree. I don't, we're just not doing that anymore. Um, but anyway, so that's my intro. This was the part that irked him and it really got me thinking this kid, although he's now a man was a competitor, competitive athlete when he was younger and his objection was that MacBags is taking testosterone, which would be illegal. It's illegal for you to take any sort of substance to boost your performance. Now, Beggs needs it to transition, but he's also doing sports. And it's just one of these ways where uh, the, our gendered society and our rules like slam up against trying to be inclusive for everyone. So I don't know if I have a question so much. It's just that it really got me thinking about like the issues that trans people face as far as the way that we currently structure society. Now, I don't think it'd be fair to tell Mac Beggs, well, sorry, you're trans, no sports for you. (laughs) I also don't think it'd be fair to put him on the boys team and be like, Beggs can take testosterone, but you guys can't. That's just the way it is. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that you framed it around the testosterone issue. Yeah. Because I I had read another piece I, I'd read a piece about this because I w- I wanted to understand the Mac you know Mac Beggs uh, case and so what your explicit question was actually handled by Harvard I don't know if you know really? that. I didn't know yes um, apparently in Harvard they because the the question is you know who should who who should he compete with right that's really the question right mm-hmm. but in um in Harvard they had a transgender swimmer named Shiler Baylor mm-hmm. was allowed to switch from the women's team when he was recruited as a breaststroker on the men's team when he transitioned so what happened was they basically gave him the option of continuing to compete against women without testosterone therapy or starting on testosterone and moving to the men's team. Now, they for that in that case they had decided that they were going to be okay with the transition and then allow him to continue on testosterone treatment and be okay to compete amongst the other guys. 
So they weren't making that distinction. They weren't making a sort of a sort of drug distinction that you're making, right? You're mm-hmm. making this distinction like you're treating, you're competing unfairly, right? Yes, yes. Um, but for me, I think that's actually, I think that kind of confuses the question, confuses the issue, right? Because men necessarily have testosterone. Mm-hmm. So the question, and, and the and the testosterone limits are within the limits that's okay within the sport. Mm-hmm. Because remember, this person is taking testosterone to gain it not taking testosterone to impact performance. And you can judge the levels of testosterone to determine whether it's impacting your performance. And, and, and and at Harvard, they determined that the levels were compatible in, were, were, were fine enough for you to feel like you were competing fairly. Do you see what I mean? That's very, I didn't know this. This is very interesting. I mean, to be clear, this is not the reason why they won't allow. Oh no! This. I yeah. mean, it's because it's Texas, and everyone <laughs> just go where you need to go with that in your mind. You know exactly why they're not letting him compete. But but that's very interesting. I, this is new information to me because I think that sounds very useful to be like to measure the testosterone. It has to be within a certain level uh, because then it kind of removes gender from it, and it's just about biology, which is. So, Okay. It's just so hard to say stuff like this in this particular time because you don't want to offend. But like in something like sports, biology does, it is important. You can't get away from that. You know, not your your sex parts. That's not important because like you're not hitting a racket or kicking a ball with your fucking dick. But like it's like your hormone levels are important to determine like where, how you, who you can compete against. And I think that's much more useful. That's interesting. I'm going to look that up. Well, what was what was the guy's name? What was the uh, swimmer's name? The swimmer's name was um, Shiler Baylor, and that's um, that's B A I L A R, and um, Shiler. I think it's um, it's 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 S C H U Y L E R. So I'm assuming that's Shiler. But um, I think what's useful about the um, the Harvard case is that the Harvard case makes it arrives at a place that allows you to actually talk about fairness in sport. Mm-hmm. without blending the issues that I think Texas is struggling with. Texas is struggling with the idea of gender. That's their, that's the primary problem yeah. there. Because yeah. remember, um, one of the coaches or a friend of the coaches refuses to call Mac. He, he's like, I just can't deal with the fact that, you know, my daughter used to be friends with this she and he wants to become a he, do you know? So, I mean, so. I love and, these people. This is and a, this, beca- <laughs> yeah. And because, and because this person remains intolerant basically everyone suffers everyone suffered because you then had a boy competing with girls when he knew that he was transitioning and was a boy now do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and is a boy now so and then everyone felt it was unfair because now all the women who had practiced and worked hard to compete against other women are competing Mm -hmm. with somebody who's already acknowledged that hey i'm not a woman anymore yeah. And so, but, you know, so they were trapped by their own inability to handle the gender question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, it's like, let's unpack it, unpack it. And you can use the testosterone as an excuse. But let, what if I just, what if we, what if we pull this all apart and let you into a space that Harvard let you into? You would have had a great competition Mm-hmm. with women wrestlers competing with women wrestlers and boys competing with boys. But no, 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 no. You decided to have a conversation about who's a boy and who's a girl. Good yeah. luck with that. <laughs> In this day and age, good luck with that. 
(laughs) It just got messy. It just got unnecessarily messy. But the part of it that was unnecessarily messy was the part that they weren't willing to confront, which is their own fears and their own ideas about gender. Listen, not all of us are nailing this out of the park. You know me. We've historically had a long, we've had a very long friendship. You know, I've made quite a journey around transgender issues. Listeners, I'm going to blow up your spot, Trisha. Are you, you can ready? blow up my spot. You can blow up no, my actually, spot. You know what? It's a useful, because it's a useful story for people to know but uh, about I, but, you. But, but, but there you was know, a I, moment in time where Trisha was actively transphobic. Like, I was actively. not transphobic in you that way. You were transphobic. We used to have, I mean, the, the, not screaming matches, but I was so frustrated with you. <laughs> the, so to be, frustrated with to you. To be to be fair, audience, I'll tell you what was defined as transphobic. One of the points I made at the time, and we're going to relitigate this. No, I don't, no, no, I'm not even relitigating it because you know what? It, it's fair. It's a fair point. Was yeah. that yeah, yeah. I wasn't. I mean, either side, you know, of it. I was. I was saying that I don't think it's. I thought it was sort of a strange move to make to say I feel like a girl. I feel like a boy. I really said, you know, what if your feeling is something that doesn't necessarily have to be labeled in that gendered way? Mm-hmm. And that was my issue with it. Not that I, I had any explicit thing about you can't say that you are, you know, I just didn't know how you could define that. How can you define that you feel like the other? Like, I didn't know what that meant. Like, I, I yeah. it's like like a black person say, I feel like a white person. Like, I Honey, don't know. Or what that the means. reverse, like, Miss. Or the reverse, yeah. Whatever she's calling herself. Rachel now. Dolezal, like, like no, I feel like. Her name. <laughs> yes. Like Captain her. Africa or something. <laughs> so, what I wanted to do was, I actually wanted us to have a conversation about gender on a continuum. That's what I wanted to have, which was, I wanted us to say, let's not do this binary thing. Because I thought I, when I read about people who were intersex and, uh, and like third gender, I was like, well, what about if we gave ourselves room for a sort of ongoing dialogue about these things? Like, why would you have to decide that you have to be one way or the other? I didn't. That's where I that's where I that, um, that I read was it, actually. That, that was, was actually a big problem. I mean, that was the point of arrival, though. Like you got there and then. I could agree with that. I think that because that question, that stance makes us really think hard about gender. And what does it mean when someone says, I want to be a girl? Um, What does it mean when someone says, I want to be a boy? I mean, in some ways, it's just continuing to subscribe to this just gender binary that we've set up that people are are trying to find themselves in these two options. And they know they don't feel quite like maybe this one fits, maybe this doesn't fit. Maybe I'm in the middle, but we don't really allow for that. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we, we, I think society's struggling with how to handle issues of transgender people in public spaces. Uh, I mean, I don't, I kind of don't want to bring up bathrooms because I'm exhausted about talking about it. Um, And also I think it, it blunts the conversation when we only talk about bathrooms. Like for instance, like I, I think this, case uh in texas is really interesting the case of baylor at harvard i think is really interesting and now that i just schooled him while you were talking i do remember him he was on ellen Mm uh he's so young and so well spoken um and handsome and he's an athlete like good good for him he's doing everything right um but yeah i think we just we're gonna continue to struggle for a while until we can sort of give up on some of these aspects of gender just give up on them or I don't even necessarily know if it's aspects of gender. I think we just have to understand the role of society. 
the, I think people need to know that society, it's an agreement that we have to, to each other, which is that we're going to construct laws, we're going to construct situations, spaces, homes, schools, what have you, to allow people to be as much of themselves safely as possible. That's, I mean, that to me is really what I believe society is about. I don't believe you have to construct. People would disagree with you immediately. I know. I know. It is upsetting, but I think that's fundamentally the difference. You have to ask yourself, listen, yeah, we can have a whole bunch of discussions about gay, straight, black, white, but the question becomes, if you exist in the society, there has to be a place for you. And the question is, do you let society, um, can you change society? Yes, you can. Can you change the individual? Probably not. So which one do you want to spend your time shuffling around? Mm-hmm. Society. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. a house. Like, you know, like your, your son. I mean, it's like a parent whose son has outgrown their beds and the, yeah. the parent refuses to buy a, 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 a regular bed. I'm sorry. I'm going to put you in this twin bed. Yeah. I just want you to stay that way forever. Make I mean, it it's just like bend your knees. Bend your knees. You know what I mean? But I don't think we have to construct society in a punitive way. I think we can we can afford to let ourselves grow, expand, change, have our minds changed, um, evolve, what have you. And if you don't give yourself room for that, I feel like you don't give yourself an opportunity to make a mistake and then um, get better, um, which is sort of a natural part of <laughs> this process. I don't know. I just it this this it bothers me that we are trapped having to sort of force people to live in our box. Yeah, and it, when, it does bother me also that we, well, I saw on Facebook, someone, one of my representatives had posted something about like, we protect trans students. And I think in New York City, the someone has signed something, oh God, mm-hmm. I sound like such an ignorant miss. Someone has signed something saying that in New York City, children will use the bathroom that matches their gender identity and not their sex parts. Uh, and someone had posted on Facebook, never read the comments, but someone posted like, "Ugh, why don't they just make a third bathroom for transgender? And I was like, how about we don't double down on the system we already have, which this conversation proves is not working. Or what about we just double down on structure? This is so funny, right? Like nowadays we have bathrooms that anyone can use. Like, well, uh, that actually is every bathroom, Trisha. Uh, every bathroom is a bathroom that anyone can use. Exactly. But I mean, but that's what, you know, I mean, in a weird way, this, we're going to make this really painful for a lot of people when we can actually create structural yeah. change, which is that you can have those bathrooms that now have private doors and then you just have a common sink. Think about that. Yeah. Think about that design. Like you just have a bathroom set of toilets with doors on them you go in do your business come out and wash your hands next to somebody who may or may not have been born with the same parts that you were born yeah. with it's, or has it's, changed it what does it mean? <laughs> it, i mean we don't have time for this and we have to wrap up this topic but like <laughs> i do want to talk about like our penis phobia Oh God. in society it's not just it's not just about centering male or hating women like no. we have like a true penis phobia when i was like looking up stuff for this segment um the uh, ioc the board mm-hmm. that controls the olympics yeah that's a big thing they just had some guidelines around trans issues and there used to be a provision that 
if you wanted to compete, um, if you are a trans woman and you wanted to compete with women, you had to have had bottom surgery. You had to have had your penis removed. And I was like, I, I, what? And now they're going to like what we discussed earlier, hormone levels. Mm -hmm. But like, what was the thinking? And this was just two years ago. What was the thinking about just the fact that she just couldn't have a penis? What is it about the penis that's so offensive? But but anyway, I mean that's a whole nother conversation. I just a it's lot a of the com- it's a pursue it's a protrusion, protrusion into space. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it takes Protru- up space. It has to be respected is- in some weird way. <laughs> a lot of people's and I know we ended up, I didn't want to talk about bathrooms. We ended up here, but a lot of people's <laughs> problem with bathrooms is that like there'll be a penis in the same room, like un- an unfettered penis in the same room with my daughter, even if it's not within her sight. The fact that there's oh, a penis. But that's, that's such bullshit, though, because they don't care about safety. I mean, these are the same people who oh, tell no. you that you are raped because safety. of yeah. whatever. So it has nothing. I mean, these are cosmetic excuses that we can't attack. We have to, can, we have to attack the base argument. Yeah. The fundamental argument is that you are trapped thinking about the world based entirely on biology. And it's okay because who wasn't raised that way? But we can invite you to have a different conversation. We can invite yeah. you to, to sort of move on that. But if you're not going to admit that that's what it's about, then we're going to sit around and talk about um, toilets like we talk about water fountains with black people. Yeah, it wasn't about that. And that's we the know. thing. Like, that's why I think about when we talk about trans people, we end up talking about toilets. Just like there was a time <laughs> when we talked about gay people, we end up talking about gay marriage. Yep. And that is not when when you when you rest there, you miss an entire universe of meaning and context. And so, I encourage everyone to just really, if you're not trans, just really think about go about your day and how much of your day is gendered. It's not just bathrooms. It's not just locker rooms. Like, there's a lot of gendering that happens for really no particular reason. It was and, just easier. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, was, we gendered color for God's sake. I mean, we gendered we gender everything. I mean. <laughs> Gendered, we've gendered department stores, you know, where you shop is separated, uh, you know, not by size, which is something that could almost make sense, right? Not by size, um, not by color of clothing, or even, or it's separated by type, but not by color of clothing, but by what, but by, by gender, which when you think about it is a decision. There's nothing about the way that stores are constructed, that that's the best way to go about it. I mean, I would argue it's not. Size. I'd much rather. Yeah, I would much Size rather just probably walk, much walk in. Holy shit! Now I'm thinking about it. <gasps> oh my god! This is why I hate shopping. If I just walk in and it's like I walk into like a medium, the medium section, and whatever I see, you can pick up. More or less fit me. It's so much better than seeing something on a goddamn mannequin, and no one ever has my size. Like. <laughs> Well, imagine if you imagine if every store was just a level. So, like, you're there's a small on the small store, and then a medium level, and a large level. So you go to the medium level, and you're just wandering around looking. And people are like, "Well, I mean, can I wear this? Sure, you can." Then the question becomes, "Can I wear this as a boy? Can I wear this as a girl? You know what I mean?" (laughs) When the conversation could be like, "This is a small. Can I get away with this?" But instead of saying that, we're like, "Oh, this." Is this a blouse or a shirt? Which is, ah, I mean, I have to say, which is a conversation when I was a teenager. I would, I, it is like a real, or it was a real moment of panic when I was younger. You walk into the mall, 
you have like three seconds to decide which side's the men's section and which side's the women's section. And that is not a game. Like you've got to make, cause you do not want to be browsing in the wrong section, but that's, it's just so stupid and outdated. All right. Anyway. So let's move into media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, or experience. What have you got for me? So I mentioned um, something casually in the podcast and I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to recommend um, Giovanni's room. I, I, you know what? I had read it years ago, forgot about it and was rereading it and thought, Hmm, this story feels familiar. <laughs> now I feel somewhat sad about that because I know a lot of people read the book and absolutely adore it. And they like read it often. And I feel so strange that I, had read it and kind of forgot about it, but I, um, I found a, a new love for it. I mean, his writing, James Baldwin's writing is just beautiful, beautiful writing to behold. Um, and also it's just a really interesting look at, um, gay life in pre- presented during that era, really, or also mm. masculine question. So, um, but if you're not into, if you're not that type of person who really reads books for, um, those kinds of things. I think it's also just a great read. Just, I think it's just really beautifully written, really interesting characterization. Um, and guillotine, they were a thing. Guillotine? Yes, even in the 50s. They were still a thing? Weird. Here? No, in France. It's based in oh. France. It's based oh, okay. in Paris. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sounds great. I will, uh, you know what? I'll read it. I haven't read it in a long time. So. You, know, you know what? I think you'll come to it with new eyes, actually, Chris. That's what I think is interesting about this book now because I'm older. So the questions I had about it, uh, the characters and the story, I felt like I could bring more to the table because I have more life experience. Mm-hmm. So. All right. I will check it out. Uh, my media recommendation is uh, this movie I saw last night called Kiki. Um my friend works at this place. They were screening the movie. Then they had the people from the movie and a party afterwards. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, Kiki is a movie about the uh, underground ballroom scene in New York City. Like Paris is Burning explored back in the 80s. It sort of revisits that scene 25 years later and the young people who are in it. And it follows Mm -hmm. a bunch of people and tells their story. And it's very current it's very good you know i i always demand that people who are gay watch paris is burning uh i think i might also demand they start watching this now uh it's just it's just a story about a bunch of at-risk teens who are trying to trying to be gay and brown or black and trying to be creative and love themselves etc you know i am a huge fan of the ballroom scene. Uh, I love it. I, I love anything that is black, brown and queer, honestly, because talk about people who have to fight for every inch of the things that they want. Um, it was like so powerful. And then at the party afterwards, a lot of the people from the movie, the, they did like a performance, like it was like a Kiki ball right there. And like people were up there twirling, spinning, living. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. It's open in LA. You can see it at the Monica Film Center. It's open here at the IFC Center in New York. And I th- it's opening in select cities. So depending on where you are, you might have the chance to check it out. It's called Kiki, uh, K-I-K-I. And uh, I, think, I think it's one. It's lovely. You should see it. Oh, good. 
Yep, that was it. And that is it. I, uh, on the way out, I just want to say, so at this party last night, it was a lot of music. It was a lot of dancing. It was a lot of noise. My ears are still ringing. Uh, <laughs> so just, just to cap this conversation, I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> Wait. Why are my, ear- my ears have been ringing? It's like well late afternoon. All right, my dear. Uh, have a fantastic, fantastic day. And I will talk to you soon. All right, babe. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.